Okay, so big stretch and have a seat. Wow, I just have to give God the glory hearing a young man stand up and boldly share his faith and share his story, be so vulnerable with us, so honest and open with us. Um, we've really been uh, just given a, a gift today by being able to hear Josh's story. And so, and just the powerfulness of this, this moment and, and watching him come up out of the water and then to say, hey, I'm a part of you, family. And for you to stand and say, you're a part of us, family. And uh, that's, that's what God is doing in our midst. Even in the midst of what we've been through, this is what God is doing. This is how the Holy Spirit is transforming and changing hearts around us. So, I told you that uh, this season we want to talk about Thanksgiving. Not just for a Sunday, but whole month. So I'm calling this series we're doing between now and Thanksgiving, it's a long title. Hope and Possibility, A Season of Thanksgiving. And so each week we're going to talk about a different aspect of what to be thankful for. So last week we talked about hope and being thankful for hope in the midst of, of a culture at times and a church at times that just gets us so discouraged and cynical. How do we have hope? And that's what we talked about last week. So this week I'm going to talk about something really easy and something that's going to be so exciting for all of you to listen to. We're going to talk about being thankful in conflict. How does that sound? That's a little better than saying, how about being thankful for conflict? However, I kind of thought about both, and I want you to consider uh, this quote from an author named uh, Henry Now, and he said this, grateful people learn to celebrate even amid life's hard and harrowing memories because they know that pruning is no mere punishment but preparation. Now that last line really impacted me, the line about pruning. Pruning is no mere punishment, but preparation. So if we're going to call times of conflict an act of God pruning us, both as individuals and as a church, have we just seen that as punishment or possibly about preparation? And preparation for what? Now recently I was reading a book um, called The Growing Season, and uh, this author is talking about the growing of vineyards and the growing of grapevines and talking about the pruning process and how incredibly important it is for a good harvest. And it was something that was said by this author that really impacted me because it was something that I didn't really get before. But I've always thought that pruning was all about so that you would get more fruit. You know, so you prune back the dead stuff or whatever so that you get more fruit. And what this author said was, and I don't know if this applies to everything, but I know it applies to grapevines, is that the biggest reason for pruning isn't necessarily to get more fruit, it's to get better fruit. And I just kind of add an, an, an aha moment for myself that, you know, so often when I look at that imagery in Scripture of fruit being associated with effectiveness or fruit in our lives as we talk about it's often so often the idea is about more, more, more. How, who's more fruitful? We're having more fruit. And yet I never thought about the fact that maybe God's pruning in our lives and maybe God's pruning in the church is about better fruit. So if God is up to it, what is he up to? And is it possible for us to be thankful both for and in conflict? So to illustrate this today, we're going to look at an account in, in Acts chapter 15 that is about two godly leaders in God's church who had such a difficult conflict with 
between the two of them that it was described as a sharp disagreement. There it is right there, Acts 15. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Now, these two individuals are some of the two most famous biblical characters of the New Testament. One of these individuals is Paul, known as the Apostle Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament probably known as Christianity's greatest scholar. So he's one of these stalwart, godly men. And then the other person is a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And these two were friends and ministry partners. And a situation happened where, as this verse says, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, just a little bit of context on these two before we read the story. So Paul and Barnabas both were seasoned missionaries who had just come back from what we would call a very fruitful missions trip. And they were reporting of all the incredible things God were doing and the church was so excited about Paul and Barnabas and the leadership they were bringing to the church. And so then they were about to set out on their second missionary journey and there was a young apprentice by the name of John Mark who had deserted them halfway through the first missionary journey. And so Barnabas wanted to take this John Mark with them on the second journey, and Paul didn't. And the scripture said they had such a sharp dispute about it that they parted company. So, with that, let me now read the actual text. It's Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 36. So, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the believers at every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul decided not to take take with them the one who had deserted them back in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in their work. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and set out the believers commending him to the grace of our Lord. So, how is it possible that two godly, godly pillars of the church could have such a disagreement that they parted company? Now, I'm going to take a little straw poll here. The scripture doesn't tell us who was right and who was wrong. Sorry to disappoint you. I know that everyone's favorite way to deal with conflict is for someone to come along and choose who's right and who's wrong. But I can guarantee you that in this scripture, we are not told who was right and who was wrong. So, you get to decide today. Now, I know you all want to be good Canadians and say, oh, it's complicated, it's both, it's... But you're not allowed to do that today. You have to choose. So, in our quick straw poll here, I want you to decide who do you think is right in this situation. Would you side with Paul Or would you side with Barnabas? So, this is how I'm going to really read this congregation, so you better vote wisely here. Anyway, so, first we'll start with Paul. How many of you think Paul was right in his decision? Come on, you Paul supporters. Okay, I know who you are. Okay, and who supports Barnabas in this? Okay, you softy Barnabas people. All right. Okay, not that I'm trying to give anything away here. Okay, now while you're thinking about that, let me give you a little bit of context of this friendship and partnership between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had been friends and partners for nearly 15 years. And what's really interesting is how Paul and Barnabas' relationship started. So Paul 
was not always the Apostle Paul. Before he was the Apostle Paul, Paul was the zealous Jewish leader who hated Christians and loved to persecute them and put them in jail, and Christians were terrified of Paul. That's who Paul was. But then Paul had this incredible experience where Jesus appeared to him, and Paul's life was completely transformed, and Paul became a Jesus follower. And during those early days of Paul being a Jesus follower, the Christians wanted nothing to do with him. Because they, didn't, they weren't sure they could trust him or believe this transformation story. Because again, this guy was their greatest enemy who is now supposed to be one of them. They weren't so sure. But then there was this one gentleman named Barnabas who decided to be Paul's advocate. And we, we read about that in Acts, in Acts chapter 9. It says, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord. So their, their friendship, their relationship started because Barnabas went to bat for Paul and believed in him and basically became his advocate before the rest of the church. Fast forward to Acts chapter 13, and we find that Paul and Barnabas had become so close and so effective in ministry together that they became ministry partners. And so in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, the church are praying together, and, and as they're praying, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So here are these two friends, devoted to each other, now we're going to set out on a missionary journey together, and they do. And they go on this incredible missionary journey where all kinds of incredible fruit happens. But even in the midst of that, they had their first conflict, or at least the one we get to read a little bit about in Scripture. And you'll find this little conflict in Galatians chapter 2. And in Galatians, so, so Paul is writing this letter, and he's describing this conflict situation. So Galatians 2, 11 to 13, and he says this. But when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. Okay, so Paul's a little ticked at Peter, why? And then later he says, and the other Jews joined him, Peter, in his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what was going on here? Basically, what was happening was that in the early church, many non-Jews, or what the Jews called Gentiles, were becoming Christians. Jesus had declared, and then the Holy Spirit had revealed to them, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for everybody. And so it was a huge deal for the Jews, who are used to having God to themselves, to realizing that God's plan, actually, was for all people. So as they started to go out and share the gospel, many Gentiles were becoming Christians. But this was still really difficult for the Jews. And so even though they were trying to get used to Gentiles could become Christians, they still had so many laws and traditions and hang-ups and everything else that they actually didn't even want to eat with them because we're not supposed to eat with Gentiles. And they had all those kind of prejudices. So Paul is really upset because he shows up in Antioch where there's been a revival and all these Gentiles are becoming Christians. And he's going, Peter, what are you doing? You're not sitting with the Gentiles. What a racist hypocrite you're being. And then even my friend Barnabas. And so you can just see Paul was really upset with what he was seeing as hypocrisy and called out his friend Barnabas. So I'm sure that wasn't an easy conflict. I'm sure Paul was Mr. Principal Paul in his face, mad. I'm right, you're wrong. And Barnabas was going, oh, wait a minute here, Paul. I'm just guessing now. He's saying, hey, we've got to you know, help these Jewish brothers come along and, you know, there's, there's lots of things that they have to deal with and he probably was trying to be somewhat compassionate and, and yet Paul was just being principled and different personalities, different ideas of how to work with people and... But 
somehow they got through that and they kept ministering together. So that's, that's another thing that happened to them. And then if you go to Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are done their first missionary trip and they come back to Jerusalem to give a report, to give a report to the church. And Acts 15 verse 12 says, the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So again, you just got to imagine the scene. These were ministry partners who had been through all kinds of things together. These were friends and comrades who had been through tons together, ups, downs, near-death experiences, you name it, on the mission field, and now they're reporting. And again, I just want you to get the sense of the depth of the friendship, the depth of the commitment, the depth of the spiritual commitment between these two men. That's who they were. So now we're back to that question. How could such godly men who have been involved in such incredible ministry, who've become such deep, deep friends, how did they get here? A quote from uh, the NIV commentator, a guy named David Matthews, he says, relational conflict should not surprise us as Christians. We need not be ashamed that it exists and that we're involved. We should expect it. The world is complicated and fallen, and we are complicated creatures. I don't know how many times in the last months as I've journeyed with you, I've heard people say something to the effect of, how can Christians, how can church people, how can godly committed church people not get along? What's wrong with us? What's our problem? And I've heard that, and I hear the pain, I hear the disappointment, and I hear the anger, and I'm not saying that it isn't valid. But I need to remind you, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are all human, and you all live in a fallen world, and that from the beginning of time, since there have been people, and from the beginning of the church, there is always conflict. All of the letters of the New Testament, I shouldn't say all, pretty much all of the letters of the New Testament are the New Testament writers writing to churches to help them deal with conflict. Now, am I saying, therefore, conflict is good and don't worry about it? I hope not. What I'm trying to say, though, is we do need to embrace our humanity, stop beating ourselves up for being human, and realize that conflict isn't the problem. The problem is when we don't get broken from it and become Christ-like through it, and then see what Jesus is doing through that conflict in order to make us more like him. I say this over and over again to, to couples when I do their premarital counseling. I'm saying, a great relationship is not one that's conflict-free, <laughs> because as all you married people know, there's no such thing. But what a good marriage is, is when a couple develops tools, good, healthy tools for how to deal with conflict. And my dear brothers and sisters here at Bridgeway, I don't think churches are any different. We are going to have conflict. We are mere humans who sin. Doesn't justify it. We need to walk in incredible humility and forgiveness and grace for each other. But we also need to develop tools and ways to deal with conflict in a healthy way so it doesn't just keep perpetuating, but it becomes a part of pruning where we started. The pruning process that doesn't just make us more abundantly fruitful, but makes better fruit in our lives. Is that what Jesus is up to? So, a few thoughts about 
and well, I should say a few observations from this story about conflict. So first of all, I'd say often conflict is not about searching for this definite right or wrong, who's right, who's wrong, pick a side, but often conflict is over judgment calls. And you see in this story, Paul and Barnabas, they had to make a judgment call. There wasn't a specific scripture they could go to to say, here's our answer. They had to actually use wisdom and discernment to make a judgment call on a human relational situation. And because they were different men with different perspectives, they came up with different judgment calls. But again, it didn't make one right and one wrong. It made it a different call. Let me uh, read you a quote from uh, the famous commentator, Matthew Henry. I think you might be surprised what he'll say. He says, Even those that are united to one and the same Jesus are sanctified by one and the same Spirit, have different opinions, views, and sentiments. It will be, it, it will so, oh, I can't read anymore. It will be so while we are in this state of darkness and imperfection. We shall never be all of one mind till we come to heaven where light and love are all perfect. Hmm. I would observe as well that conflict can often be a result of different leadership or life philosophies or different visions that people will have for life or for the church. I'd like to suggest to you that different leaders and different people are going to have different gifts, different visions, different philosophies, different perspectives, and that every strength is vulnerable to its corresponding weakness. And I see the slide's already up there, so you're already ahead of me. But I want to compare for you here with this little chart just the two types of leaders we're talking about here and how different they are. You see, Paul, Paul is, like I said, he was the church's greatest scholar. Paul was incredibly educated, a very, very intelligent man, a very, very passionate man. Paul was a very principled and visionary man. That's who he was. Now, in all of that strength, and he brought so much strength by his leadership style, there were times when people thought he was harsh. And that comes up in the letters as well, that, that Paul often had to find a way to win people back because they were so hurt or angered by his passion and vision and principledness. And, and that, was, that was sort of, again, all of Paul's good, but also some of that Paul was this principled kind of leader, and that's what that last thing is about, where often with, with Paul-type leaders, they, they, were, they would be a little bit more that vision trumps relationship. And what I mean by that, that as principled leaders, they would go, this is the vision that God has called us to. Yes, we want everyone to be on board with this vision, but if you're not, too bad. It's right, and it's what God has said. We're going. I heard one pastor say one time, and I don't recommend this, but one pastor was probably very Paul-like who said, get on the bus, or maybe the bus will run you over. And doesn't that sound terribly harsh? Yes, it does. But according to that leader, that was, they, they were a very principled leader that said, God's vision for our church is this way, and if you're not on board, well, there's lots of other good churches out there, get on board this vision. Now again, for some of you, you're going, well, good for you. Finally, we have a leader standing up and has some strength. And others of you are going, oh my goodness, that sounds scary. I would never want to follow a leader like that. Right? Well, now what about Barnabas? 
Now, Barnabas is your classic sort of shepherd pastor kind of person, right? Even his name, meaning son of encouragement. He was your mentor, your encourager, your motivator. That was his gifts and the strengths that he brought to the church and as a leader. But as we can see from some of the brief little stories we know about Barnabas, his dark side or corresponding weakness was he could be a people pleaser or a compromiser. So, simple to see, right? But I would, I would imagine, as I look out at all of you, you are all attracted to and will follow different types of leaders. Some of us are very much love and respect and want to follow a Paul-like leader, and some of us really respect and like and want to follow a Barnabas-type leader. So who's right and who's wrong? You know, I've seen this happen in churches so many times. This is what churches do. They will have a Barnabas-type leader, and while they have a Barnabas leader, it's like, wow, our church is wonderful, we all feel so cared for, but then there will be people who will be like, well, yeah, it's great that our church is all being cared for and all the rest of it, but you know what? We, we're not really reaching out, and we don't really have a strong vision, and, and we should be doing more, and, and then they start to desire that, and they want to see change and more vision. And so then, often what they do is that then the next pastor they hire, they bring in a Paul leader, and this leader comes in, and they go, yes, we want powerful preaching, and we want strong vision, and we want to be missional. We want to be that kind of a church. And they go, okay, is that what you, is that, are you sure that's what you guys want? Yes, that's what we want. And so then they start leading that way. And then before long, there's those in the church that go, I feel like I'm the person that was being run over by the bus. Or I feel like, it feels like we're just now all about out there, out there, out there, and we're not, we're not caring for the body anymore. And and then the church will struggle with that again, and then often the next pastor they'll bring on will be a Barnabas leader. And we kind of do this pendulum thing. Now, I'm just saying that not to be mean to churches or whatever. <laughs> I've been in lots of them, so I should know, and I've been one of those pastors. But just, again, to see the humanness in this, and to rather than to be fighting over rightness and wrongness, best approach, right philosophy, right vision, wrong vision, is for us as a church to say, God, who are you calling us to be? That's why I keep saying through this transitional process, let's not look for a pastor who we can go, we need someone to come in and lead us and give us a new vision. No, we as a congregation need to discover who God is calling us to be, who God has uniquely created us to be. And then for us to craft that vision together, that purpose, that mission together, and then to invite leadership in who will want to serve and lead that vision. And I think that, again, that's also not going to keep us free from conflict, but it might change sort of this back and forth. Anyway, went on way too much about that. So just, just one more observation I'd make from this story is about how, what conflict like this teaches us in terms of this pruning process. Is that, you know, ultimately, as followers of Jesus... And how did Josh remind us today about what it means to not be a church person but to be a follower of Jesus? Is that conflict teaches us and that pruning process gives us opportunity to learn how to grow in grace and forgiveness. One author said, it's the toughest times, the hardest conversations, the most painful relational tensions when the light of his grace shines brightest and transforms us most into his son's likeness. So I started off by saying, 
that the title of this message was Hope and Possibility, Being Thankful in Conflict. So, where's the hope? Where's the possibility? Well, I would suggest that hope starts with recognizing and understanding that as followers of Jesus, we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's our mission. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation. So guess what conflict does? It gives us opportunity to live that out. It gives us opportunity to extend forgiveness, even if it doesn't feel like it's deserved. It gives us opportunity to understand the kind of humility that Jesus modeled, and then to learn to live out that kind of humility. That humility that doesn't demand rights, that doesn't demand I be exonerated for my views or my position, but the kind of humility that says I will lay down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ because that's what Jesus did. Because what are we called to be? We're not called to be ministers of justice. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation. Let the justice be done by God, the one who knows all. Let's us live out who we're called to be as followers of Jesus, the humble, broken ones who are ministers of reconciliation and that who want to see the very way Jesus was be the way that we are together as his followers. That's the hope we have in grabbing that call and saying, Lord Jesus, in spite of my struggle, in spite of my humanness, can I walk in the kind of humility you walked in and truly be a minister of reconciliation? I believe there's hope in conflict because when conflict is named and faced rather than avoided, healing can happen. Now, those of you that have been through struggles in your families, struggles with friends, and of course, you married people here, you know, when you bury conflict, it never goes away. When you just choose to ignore it, it never goes away. When you have to face it, it is incredibly hard, incredibly hard, and yet the only path to healing is to face the conflict, is to face the hurt, and to walk through it. In a couple weeks, Darren announced this already, but in, in two Sundays from now, we're going to have a congregation meeting. And at this meeting, now Darren's been teasing me about this forever because he, he laughs at the name I have for it, but I'm calling this meeting the Healing and Closure Meeting. So that's, that's, that's pretty high hopes for this uh, naive transitional pastor, Right? But here's what we've been praying for and hoping for and planning for, is that we can come together as a congregation on that day. And I believe, I don't want to get too far into this today, but I believe there's two really important things that need to happen in that meeting. Number one is there needs to be a whole level of truth-telling from me and leadership so that you as the congregation know what, what, what happened and it's going to be hard to name some of those truths because some of those things will feel hurtful, will, will feel like, will, might feel like blame, even though that's not the intent. But we do need for you to face and hear the truth of the struggle that we've been through. So that, that's one side of it, truth-telling. And then the other side is this whole reconciliation piece I'm talking about. And that is for all of us to come with our broken humanity 
and our humility and with an open, honest heart say, what can we own? All of us have something to own in this. And if we can come with an open heart to own, to ask for forgiveness, to receive forgiveness, to not anymore talk about my rights, my views, but be able to lay it down. So the truth-telling and the reconciliation. And I hope that in some of that, we can come to a place of closure. Because my brothers and sisters, the last thing I want for Bridgeway is for you to continue on in feeling like we're a church in conflict. It's time for closure on this season. And again, not a closure that sweeps everything under the carpet, pretend it didn't happen and let's just move on. No, face the truth, face the hard forgiveness, walk through it, and then say, okay, Lord, it's time for closure. It's time to shut the lid on that coffin and let's move on to the destiny and the calling that God has for this church. So that's part of the hope, and then that's the possibility. The possibility here is, can we be a church that changes its identity? Bridgeway Church, we no longer want to have our identity be that we're the hurting church, that we're the conflict church. No. My prayer, my hope, and my desire is that we will put that identity away and we will embrace a Jesus identity that we will embrace a new identity of a church with hope, a church that's going to discover our unique place in the body, our unique calling, and then just desire to be a family that's going to live it out together, to be those, the ministers of reconciliation, those that can bring that within our church body and within this community of Swift Current, to be that church. What can that new identity look like and be? That's the possibility that I hope you can all get excited about. The closure's got to come and the healing so that we can come to that hope and possibility. And I believe that is God's heart for us. So as we close, I want you to, to look at a prayer with me. It's a prayer I found a while ago called The Prayer for Times of Conflict and Division. Now listen as I read it. In the midst of conflict and division, we know it is you who turn our minds to thoughts of peace. Your spirit changes our hearts. Enemies begin to speak to one another. Those who are estranged join hands in friendship, and communities seek the way of peace together. Your spirit is at work when understanding puts an end to strife, when hatred is quenched by mercy, and vengeance gives way to forgiveness. For this, we should never cease to thank and praise you. I just want to give you a minute to just reread that prayer a few times and just meditate in your heart on this prayer.
So I'm going to ask us to respond this morning. Now remember that prayer is not a declaration of where we're already at. Prayer is a declaration of dependence on God and saying, we need your help in order to be this ideal that we're aiming towards. So I'm not asking any of you to say, I can affirm this because I'm already living at 100%. If you are, can I please talk to you later and please pray for me? I need you in my life. Sorry to be glib about that. I'm just saying that remember that part about prayer. Again, it's not about I've arrived. It's about my spirit agrees with this and I want to choose with God's help to walk in this direction. So I want you to just ask yourself if your heart is there and that you can respond by praying this prayer with me. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. And I invite, now, I invite you now to respond together. And whoever wants to, please join me in this declaration. And let's, let's pray this prayer together out loud. In the midst of conflict and division, we know it is you who turn our minds to thoughts of peace. Your spirit changes our hearts. Enemies begin to speak to one another. Those who are estranged join hands in friendship, and communities seek the way of peace together. Your spirit is at work when understanding puts an end to strife, when hatred is quenched by mercy, and vengeance gives way to forgiveness. For this, we should never cease to thank and praise you. So Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. Lord, you've heard the heart prayer of this congregation. Lord, we confess that so often we're nowhere near this prayer. Lord, so often we do want to hang on to our rights and our vengeance and our anger and our pride and all the things that hold us back. Lord, Lord, we confess that. And Lord, we pray, Spirit of God, mercy of Jesus, would you break us of that? Would you soften our hearts? Oh Lord, I pray that you will raise up in this church each one of us to embrace our call to be ministers of reconciliation. Lord, to offer and receive forgiveness freely and to live out the peace and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, we, we can't heal this church, only you can. And so, oh Holy Spirit, pour out in power. Oh Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. You are the great shepherd. You said that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail. So Lord, we call upon your promise and we pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out in power over your church. Lord, the Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts deeper and deeper to make us into your true followers, Jesus. Oh, so Lord, do this miracle among us. Lord, we need your miracle to bring healing and closure so that, Lord, Bridgeway can be the church that you've called us to be. Lord, we pray for a new identity that you will speak, Jesus, into each of our hearts, that you will speak into this church family. And so, Lord, this is our prayer. This is our heart cry to you. And we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, Bridgeway Congregation. Have a great afternoon.